Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are in the final days of April. It's the point at which most seniors are now starting to think about their college decisions and and starting to make those enrollment deposits at the schools that they'll be attending in the fall. Uh, We've got a great show lined up for you today. In our second segment, we'll be talking a little bit about those waitlist decisions and some of the things They'd be thinking about if they are on a wait list and are hoping to be admitted from the wait list. And we'll also talk a little bit about tax season, which I think is everybody's least favorite topic, but we want to explore some tax advantage strategies for saving for college. And that'll be coming up in our finance corner. But before we do that, we've got kind of a special guest here on the show today. Um, Joining us is a real live high school senior, (laughs) uh, Jack Murphy from Massachusetts. Hey, Jack. Hi, how are you doing, Ian? I'm doing well. I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, We were able to track you down because you are the son of the host of this show, Beth Heaton. (laughs) So she's your mom. She's my boss. Uh, I hope nothing we talk about here will get either of us into any kind of trouble today. But we just (laughs) want to unpack a little bit about how your college process unfolded. Um, The first question I'm just curious about, when do you feel like the process of applying for college started? Um, Was it just last fall? Was it many months before? When would you say it began for you? Um, I would definitely say that it was uh, the process kind of started in like last spring uh, Mm -hmm. and just kind of like began with like researching uh, schools and my mom kind of getting on me to be like, um, you know, what schools we're looking at and then what are you going to write about in your essay? So I think that's kind of like where everything really uh, started for me. And when that happened, I'm wondering, you know, Beth has obviously supported hundreds of students through this process. You are her only child. Um, And so this is is a big deal for her as she was going through this. Did she sit you down and have a conversation at the beginning? Was it just like, oh, Jack, it's time to start thinking about this stuff? How did the kickoff process start, especially for parents who are listening and maybe have juniors right now? How did your mom approach it? Um, my mom just kind of, it was like one of those things where it was like, you know, you come home from school and my mom would be like, okay, like, you know, start looking at some schools. Like I'm going to want to have like a list by, you know, next week. And then it was kind of like, okay, sure. And then, you know, you know, two weeks go by and you don't really have a list, but it was just kind of like one of those things where it'd be like daily reminders and, um, just kind of like here and there we talk in and like have little check-ins and kind of discuss, you know, like what my priorities were for a school, um, her thoughts on different places I should look. Um, and, but it wasn't like, you know, sit down, okay, like let's start this process. Like, you know, it's all going on at once. Um, it was definitely kind of like a slow rollout, uh, mm-hmm. in the beginning and then kind of picked up more as, you know, it was time to visit schools and time to, you know, make decisions, um, like that. But yeah, it was definitely like a slower rollout, not like a one moment start. Gotcha. So she didn't say, you know, Jack, sit down. We're going to talk about college now. <laughs> no, it was something no. that was just, yeah, kind of came up. Exactly. Yeah. From your perspective, when was the point where the idea of going to college started to feel 
more real. Like it was something that was really going to happen. I think it happens at different points in times for different students. Did it, was it a visit? Was it some research that you were doing? When could you start to think about, all right, this, this is really happening for me. I don't even know if it's really hit me fully yet that I even am. Um, But I would say that like, I think I went on a visit really early before COVID um, my sophomore year Mm -hmm. and kind of like walking around, um, visited like Yukon, which is nearby to us. And um, that was really cool to kind of like see kids on campus and to really like, you know, think about, okay, well, I'd walk to class and I'd go to the gym here and I'd walk from here to there and, you know, and kind of like being able to see myself in a space that wasn't my high school and in my life. Um, I think that kind of made it a little bit more real and I could imagine myself in places. Um, but I still wouldn't say that I'm like fully like, Oh, of course I'm going to like, you know, I don't really know what's going to happen. I don't really know if I'm fully out of, uh, my high school mindset yet, but I think that that first initial visit was definitely the moment where it became more real. Interesting. So that was, that was back probably in like early 2020 or even late 2019. Yeah. I want to say that was late 2019. It's interesting. I think, I think 2019, I was having a conversation with your mom about what your college list might look like. And she was throwing out different schools. You know, Jack might be interested in one like this or like that. And so, but she didn't, hadn't actually started talking to you about researching colleges until almost two years later when you're in your junior year. Um, What was the early part, like the pre junior year college exploration process? Was that just, we're going to go check this out and see what it's all about? Or was there some kind of homework she was assigning you in terms of your thinking process? What did that look like for you? For me, I think it was mostly just um, like, well, let's go and see, you know, kind of like different schools that are nearby that could kind of, I guess we only visited two schools before I really started visiting. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, we visited Yukon, which is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And it was like, you know, well, how did you feel about that? How did you like the experience of kind of being out by yourself? Um and then it was visiting BU um, and less about like, well, you're going to go to BU or like, how do you like this specific school? But more like, well, how did it feel to be in a city and kind of a looser campus, um, which I think BU is very loose. And so it was kind of like I was able to then get a better feeling for what I actually looked for in a campus and in, a, in a, an environment um, by seeing those two places. And it was mm-hmm. less about, you know, the actual school and more just kind of like, well, let's get some features down. What things felt good to you? What things didn't, um, you know, what'd you like? What'd you not like? And so then we can kind of move forward with a bigger list of actual schools where, you know, you're competitive and, you know, so on and so forth, that kind of thing. So what would you say are the characteristics that became the most important for you as you were conducting your college search? If, how would you describe your ideal college campus, um, you know, what, what are the features for you? Well, I think that the kind of idea of like an actual campus was really important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of learned later on in the, like, I I think at the beginning I was very much like, well, I want to be out in the middle of nowhere. You know, I want to be like Penn state or something like that, where I'm out really in the middle of nowhere. But I think kind of like going and seeing more schools, um, like university of South Carolina was one, um, where I visited and it was like still very much a contained campus, Um, it just wasn't, it was just in a city environment. So I think that that was kind of like, okay, well, it's not necessarily where it is, but it's more like, you know, being in a contained campus where the campus is the focus of people's events. You know, people are going to football games. People are, um, you know, going and hanging out around campus. It's not about, I didn't want to go to school where it was like, everyone goes off and parties in the city, um, or everyone's doing things off campus. That's going to be expensive. And I just kind of was like, you know, I want something where people are doing activities at the school. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a super passionate like population of students. You know, people go to the you know sports games. People get fired up, and they're fans. And um, I think that was super important to me. Um, and obviously, I like you know the green and the trees and all the pretty uh, you know flowers and stuff. And um, being from the north, I didn't think it was too much of a concern of going to a school that was going to be colder because I'm obviously used to that. But I definitely didn't want to go anywhere that was going to be colder than where I was at currently. So I kind of ruled out, you know, some of the more northern schools. Um, and, you know, I kind of thought that was just going to be, you know, if a school could hit those qualifying, you know, it felt contained. People were happy to be on campus. People were happy to go to that school and proud of that school. Um, then those were the those are my key things. You know, we were trying to get you to come out and look at Oregon State, or at least <laughs> I was. I don't know if that message got to your mom, it, but it seemed it like you wanted did, to be. Yeah. You wanted to be more in the eastern part yeah. of the U.S., right? Yeah, definitely. I I kind of felt like um, I we did. She told totally want me to look at Oregon State, um, and like I had a couple schools on the West Coast initially, um, but I kind of felt like you know almost all of my family is uh, in the East and mm-hmm. will remain so for the foreseeable future. So I just didn't want to be like you know, so far that it was a really big, you know, really long plane ride. And it was, you know, too, just so much that I couldn't even drive home if in like a day if I wanted to, um, you know, so I kind of feel like even though um, a lot of the schools I was looking at were far, you know, like 17 hour car rides, and it wasn't about, well, can I drive there conveniently? It was just like, I guess the idea for me of being able to, you know, if I have to drive home in an emergency or something like that, that I could, was yeah. really important to me. I think also with COVID, you know, kind of like you can see how things can get shut down and how kind of crazy yeah. um, everything can be. So I think it was like really important that, you know, if I had to, I could go home. Um, I don't necessarily know if I mentioned that to my mom or made that clear, but I kind of, that's how I felt in, you know, inside. So, yeah. It, it was interesting to watch, just to hear in conversations with Beth about your college search process. It really did feel like there was a funnel, like you started really big and then it got smaller yeah. and smaller and smaller. And you always had kind of this steady idea of what you were looking for out of your college experience, but the number of schools that fit your priorities narrowed more and more as you went and visited and got a lot of different kinds of inputs and, and essentially grew up, right? Like what yeah. you were looking for as a freshman or a sophomore is still fairly consistent with the schools you applied to. But I think there were some some key differences as you went along the way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the actual process of putting the application together, uh, especially the the essay writing process. Um, what were some things that you felt like your mom did as a parent that was really helpful for you in terms of putting your application together? And what were some things that maybe you wish she had done a little bit differently? Um, if there are any for the application, maybe she, she handled it all perfectly. (laughs) I felt she handled it really well. Um, obviously, you know, I'm biased as my mom. (laughs) Um, but I think that obviously like having her be, you know, someone who has so much knowledge, I think a lot of people kind of were like, oh, well, is that scary for you? Um, is that make things weird? But I actually thought it made it better. Um, just kind of just because I trusted everything she was telling me, you know, I Mm -hmm. knew she wasn't just making it up. And I hear like, after hearing a lot of the kids, uh, at my school talk about, you know, what their parents were trying to get them to do and, um, you know, like making these claims basically off of like nothing yeah. um, or making, you know, just saying like, well, well, this so-and-so got into this school so I can get in. And, you know, they don't know that those people have connections and there's so much deeper. So I felt like that was really helpful um, mm-hmm. for her to kind of to tell me the honest truth and to not 
you know, say like, oh, well, you know, like, yeah, we can apply to Michigan. You know, I wasn't going to get into Michigan. So it's like she I think she was super honest with me and it it made the um, process of filling out the applications and that way better just because I knew my expectations. I knew where I was probably going to get in and I, you know, knew what schools were going to be tough. And I, I had a very realistic expectation. Um, it also helped that obviously she knows what she's talking about when she was editing my essay. Cause right. I know a lot of kids that, you know, just have like essays and I read them in class. And I'm like, Oh yeah, it looks great. And it's, you know, <laughs> knowing what, what's good and what's not is kind of like, um, very telling when you see, you know, a lot of kids writing stuff. So I, that was really helpful. But I think just kind of like managing expectations and being really honest with me instead of, um, you know, trying to tell me that, you know, I was the greatest. And I'm sure she wanted to tell me I was going to get into every school. Um, but, you know, I, I wasn't. And that was the best thing I think she could have done instead of then turning into a bad thing, you know, a couple months later when I'm getting a bunch of rejections, you know. So it's, it's tough. I think it's something that we all as counselors, we sometimes have to grapple with, um, you know, being honest with the students that we work with about what their chances are of getting into some schools. And I think it is, it is easier when you have your child, cause you can say, look, you're not going to get into Michigan. Like, yeah, yeah. It's hard to say that to somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, there's, you don't feel like you have total control over that process. Um, but you know, I, I'm glad that she felt that space that she could be honest with you. And I think it, it probably led to just a more balanced overall process that was less yeah. stressful because of your expectations being managed. Um, it was interesting, you know, with respect to the essay itself, you know, she had you talk to me about mm-hmm. developing the idea. She didn't want to get in with the idea because she thought maybe she would have too heavy a hand there. But then yeah. once you thought about your idea, then she helped you a little bit with your, your messaging. How did that essay process go once you had the idea and started writing it um, in terms of getting her help and support and knowing when to say, okay, that's enough, mom. Like, we're good. I'm ready to send this essay. I think I was just super, you know, like, this is your process. You're the expert. Um, I was kind of like, I'll write down. And, you know, my mom, um, you know, says she likes my writing. Uh, so I, I'll trust her on that. Okay. Um, you know, so I, I don't think that was really hard. I think I just kind of was like, okay. And, uh, you know, I'll let her, I'll let her make the decisions. And, um, you know, obviously I'm writing it and taking the creative decisions. But I think when we would have like good conversations and, um, you know, about what that editing process would look like. And I think that we had a very, um, you know, healthy process of kind of like, I didn't feel like she was writing the essay for me. You know, it was still very much my words, my essay. Um, but I totally trusted her to make the call, um, you know, about whatever needed to be done, whatever needed to be edited, what needed to be cut, you know? So I think yep. that was a very helpful process where I really just was able to trust her, um, you know, to do the right thing and do, do what you, would help me. Do you remember when last fall, everything was done and submitted and your process was over with? Um, I, well, I had to submit like honor college essays and stuff, which kind of bled longer into like November, mm-hmm. but I want to say that, I mean, my essay was done by, uh, early October, mm-hmm. maybe I think yeah. so. So pretty early, like before, before deadlines, you weren't yeah. stressed about applications through Thanksgiving and through the, the winter break. It was like, all right, I'm, I'm done. Oh, yeah, no. yeah. College. yeah, I would think it was, um, you know, there was like the honors college essays kind of came down to the wire. There were a couple nights where I was, you know, typing essays and like yeah. my mom, it was, you know, the night it was due. And I don't think my mom was super happy about that. Um, but all of my actual schools I applied to and, um, 
I got everything in a couple days before the deadline. And so I definitely felt comfortable with that. And, you know, I didn't, it was like totally burden off me when I saw everyone at school the next day, yeah. you know, kids, literally kids not showing up to school that, you know, before the big deadlines, so many kids would be missing and just kind of be like, oh yeah, well, I'm writing all my stuff in one day. Um, you know, so I felt really good that I didn't have to kind of do that. <laughs> Proactive and thoughtful and just totally. manage that process in part because mom said, Trust me, you don't want to be one of these kids. Exactly. Yeah. It you got to get it done. Yeah. Now, she said to me the other day that as you were sort of zeroing in on your final decision, the schools that you were considering at the end of the process were different in terms of their qualities from the ones at the start of the process that you thought you were going to like mm-hmm. um, as your, your top choices. Just what were the final things that you were considering as you were weighing your, your options and, and have you made a choice about where you're going to deposit for next year? <laughs> um, I have made a choice. I will be going to uh, Miami University in Ohio. That's right. Um, super excited about it. I think it kind of came down to um, a little bit like uh, if I'm going to really try to uh, play sports and what that's going to look like. And so where I'm going to be able to do, you know, continue playing football um, and continue what I love um, was really the most important thing to me, I think, or not the most important thing, um, but like was one of the biggest factors. I mean, like yeah. schools that didn't have a club football team where I knew that if I didn't, you know, have the one in a million shot of making the varsity team, I was going to be out. Um, I think I kind of ruled out schools like that, like Penn State. Um, and so I think that was a big factor in it. And, um, you know, just kind of like more going to actual when we went and visited and listening to what the um, actual programs were about and kind of like seeing the classes and being like, well, this is this what I want to learn about. Is Do these people seem exciting? Um, and does their message kind of uh, excite me? So I think that was the big thing. Um, you know, going to visit Miami and hearing their uh, one of their professors speak about, you know, their sports leadership and management course. And I was like, you know, really, I, I felt that it was what I wanted. He made an emphasis about teaching and it's, you know, and so I, I just kind of thought it was a really great course. And I really liked that person. And I was like, well, if this is what it's going to be like, then I'm excited about that. Um, so I think that the actual curriculum really came into play when I had like my schools really narrowed down um, where I think it doesn't before because it's so like hard to dive into every course you might possibly be taking, especially yeah. when you don't know what you're, what you want to do. So I think like kind of ruled out everything by like, what's the most vain approach down to the most minutia, you know? So it was like, at the start it was like, well, is this a big school? And you know, is it outside in the middle of nowhere? Okay. And it was like the most vain aspects I would say were the start of the funnel. And then as you kind of go down, it was the more important thing. Like what's life on, like, on campus, you know? Um, where are people going on the weekends? And then, you know, down to like, well, what courses am I actually going to be taking? What am I actually going to be learning? Yeah, so I would say that's that exactly how I would coach people to think about the process. It's almost like you had an expert supporting you. In terms <laughs> I know, of right? It's crazy like, how that works. Imagine that. Uh, Jack, thanks for coming on the show. I know that this has been your process very much, but I appreciate you being willing to share it here and also, totally. you know, having your mom share your story along the way too. So congrats on Miami. I think that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for All having right. me. Yeah, you got it. Folks, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about the wait list. So don't go away. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. 
That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We just had a great conversation with Jack Murphy, who is in many ways the son of this podcast, (laughs) Um, I guess the host of this podcast. And he's very happily um, depositing at a school that he's really excited by. What we're going to talk about next is what happens if you're depositing at a school and maybe you're on the wait list at some other schools that you're hoping will admit you. And in order to have that conversation, we've got the lovely Karen Spencer here, a longtime guest of the podcast. Hey, Karen, it's good to see Hi, you. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing really well. Um, so how honest do we want to be here about the wait list? Let's just, let's just start at the top. I'm on the wait list at a school. What are my chances of getting in off the wait list? Give it to me straight. Not good. (laughs) When you said we're going to be honest, you know who I am. How long have we known each other? You know, I'm just going to give it to you straight. Yeah, not good. It just, it isn't. That's the, that's the quick answer. And we could be done with this whole section right now, but um, yeah, the, just for kind of um, a sense for your odds, I, I looked at the common data set and I'm sure you've talked about this before on the radio show, but the common data set is a kind of institutional collection of a knowledge that colleges give um, forth that says, you know, in any given year, here's our retention rate, here's our graduation rate, here's all these things. Um, and you can see, and it's, it's public, you can, you know, search it on the search engine. I just did it five minutes ago. Um, and for, I just randomly picked two schools, actually I picked three. Um, I picked Purdue, my son's or my friend's um, child is going there. And then I picked Franklin and Marshall College where I used to work. And then I picked my alma mater, Valpo. Um, so just to kind of give you a sense for things. And so one first lesson is, it's not everybody does this particularly um, thoroughly. So Valpo had zero information. Valpo, shame on you. You didn't fill this <laughs> um, But um, just as a, as a good sense for this, I w- actually I went to UVA. I lied. I went to UVA where I went to grad school. Okay. Um, page seven. Um, let's see here. Oh, I just had it. And then of course, now I just moved it now that we're sitting here. Um, the chance of getting off the wait list was 1%. Okay. Put 8,600 kids on the wait list and they took off 86, which was easy math. I didn't even have to use calculator for that. That's nice of them. Um, yeah. So 86 and then Purdue put something like 8,000 on them and took off about 90. Um, so right. So not great. And those are from, you know, super uber doer selective to sort of selective if you're an engineer, right? And then, um, so yeah, odds are just never in your favor, um, generally speaking. And and I think the reason we want to start there is because it's really important for students to deposit at a school where they've been offered admission. It's really important for students to start to emotionally and psychologically connect with a school that they've already gotten into. 
right? Like you, you have to say, I've got the bird in the hand. This is the one I'm going to be attending next fall. And then potentially a waitlist offer could come, but the chances are that it won't. And, and that's okay. Uh, but I think that you want to start to move on from the school. And if it's one that grabs you back, then it does. But I think if not, then you're already well on your way towards committing to that other institution. Um, now, I think there is a little bit of, you know, with those data, you have 86 students that were admitted from 8,600 on the wait list. I would imagine that Virginia probably called more than 86 students to make an offer off the wait list. So the ones that they're counting are the ones who said yes and were ultimately admitted from the wait list. Um, what are schools kind of going through right now based on your experience working in these admission offices? It's about, by the time this airs, it'll be about three days to May 1st. What's going on in an admission office as they're counting their numbers and, and starting to look at what they've got for an incoming class next fall? Sure. So, you know, at this time of year, and even probably a little earlier by the time you've heard this, right, colleges are start to see kind of the writing on the wall on where things are settled, right? There's mm -hmm. there's a nuance to this that happens every year. By a certain date, you kind of know where you're looking about in terms of enrollment. Sure, they still have a week left, but traditionally, we know what's coming in for those last three days and what's not coming in those last three days or so. Right. Um, and right. so usually, you know, at that point, the dean has come to their staff and said, I want you to go find me blank, whatever blank is, right? Um, it might say we're under enrolled in you know, the business school, we have way too many females enrolled, not that there's such a thing, but there's too many females enrolled. And, you know, we pride ourselves on, you know, having enrolled kids from all 50 states and we have nobody from Oklahoma so far coming from, okay. Well, that's the year it's really good if you're a male applicant from Oklahoma who applied to the business school, right? And if you have high testing, frankly, that's just frosting. Um, so, you know, that's what I was looking for, right? And it wasn't always that uber specific. I don't want you to say that it's like some hyper specific thing, although maybe sometimes it is, sure. right? But generally speaking, we were told to look in a certain realm of students, right? Um, I think it's important to just to kind of go back even another level. A lot of times people will say to us, like, why would Purdue put 8,600 kids on the wait list, yeah. right? That seems absurd. more than they'll ever need, right? Right. Why would you do that, right? And, and it's a legitimate question. And even my first year, I remember in admissions, I was like, why do we do that? That's a lot of people. Like, why are we wasting all these poor kids' time when they're never going to get off the wait list? And I think one of the things you have to think about is that, you know, at Georgetown, I'll give you my experience at Georgetown was my most recent. We put about 2,000 kids on the wait list back when I was there. Um, and, and again, we took about a hundred give or take back in the day. Um, so again, not many, um, but people would then say, why 2000? And we would say, well, first of all, about a thousand of those kids aren't actually interested, right? So already that 2000 is going to go down to 1000 real quick. Now the problem is you don't know which thousand aren't interested. So you better make sure you've got enough padding that you've right. made that sure right. that a thousand isn't the only thousand you admitted, right? So you've got to give yourself enough padding to allow for that natural 50, 60% attrition, right? Because another 100 or 200, to your point, right, have gotten excited about their second choice. They're good. They said they were interested. Give them another week or two. They're, They're really not actually not that interested, right. right? So now we're down right. to like 700, 800. Well, now that's a much more doable number. And again, I'm looking to fill gaps in a class with a wait list, right? I'm looking where, do, where am I under-enrolled? Who am I missing? Um, what do I need to fill those gaps, right? And you need kind of an applicant of every stripe, essentially, to pick from because you're not sure where those gaps are going to be in any given year. So I need enough male and female applicants. I want diversity of 
major, geography, all these different things so that wherever I'm under enrolled, I've got a group of students I can pull from. So there is some method to what looks like a ridiculous amount of people on the wait list. And, and the hope on the part of the enrollment manager is that they won't use the wait list, right? right? Ideally, they nail the class in that first go around and they don't have to start making those calls. You don't want to be in a position where you're severely under-enrolled because now you're scrambling to get kids off the wait list. And it can be hard. You might have to place five calls for every one kid that says yes. Um, you might not have financial aid off the wait list. And so you need to call students who can afford to pay the full tuition, who are probably also getting other calls from other wait lists at the same time. Um, and so it's a really stressful time of year in the admission office. And they're, they're looking when that call is made to be able to find someone who's going to say yes and say yes fairly quickly. Um, and so that's something I think students need to be prepared for is you've got about 48 hours to decide, is this a yes or a no for me? Do I want to accept this offer? You don't typically get to go visit campus. You don't get to say, wait a second, I got to do some more research. You've got to be ready to say yes at that point in time. Are there things that students can do, Karen, to pre prepare themselves to be able to say yes or to indicate to a school that they are likely to say yes if that call does come you know, before May 1st rolls around? Yeah, absolutely. So that letter of continued interest, and, and I know some schools don't allow for that. Um, the UCs will say, don't bother, we're not reading that. Yeah, right. um, but a lot of schools will. Even Georgetown, that didn't take demonstrated interest into account at original admission. We don't care how much you like us or what you did, uh, you know, the front end, like Franklin and Marshall did. But on the back end, we still did. Like, if you had a letter in your file, I was still there when we had paper files because I'm 100 years old. But like, if we had a letter in your file that said, I'm still really interested in your waitlist. I promise I'm coming. If you let me off, it's been my first choice, blah, blah, blah. I love you. I love you. I love you. And that kid is, is in the ballpark of what I've been asked to kind of look at. Yep. I'm yanking that file first. So right. if any demonstrated interest, I just think it's a never a waste, right? If they don't look at it, then they won't look at it. But, you know, admissions officers are people, as we've liked to remind people, right? We have heartstrings too. We we like kids who like us, um, you know, who want to come here. We don't want to take a student off the wait list for them a week later to be like, just kidding, I'm still gonna go to Barnard, right? Like, that's not interesting right. to me. Um, right. And so, yes, I think that is never a bad idea and always a good idea, generally speaking, unless specifically told not to do so. Again, following directions is also important. Um, and sadly, rightly or wrongly, students who are, again, to your point, are no need, are usually gonna be pulled first, right? At Franklin and Marshall College, where we did not have gads of money, and even at Georgetown, which has less money than people I think, think they have, um, we were usually told to go find no need students. Um, so students who are not going to cost us any money to take them off the wait list. Um, so that that's something you can do about that. But if you were no need, your chances just increased as well. And sometimes students can say that in their letter of continuing interest that I don't need financial aid, um, you know, if, if required, I think it's hard to find an artful way of saying something like that. Um, but, but it can be helpful. Typically, schools are going to know already because they've run a financial aid analysis on your FAFSA or your profile or both, um, if necessary. Um, I think sometimes, Karen, I, I tend to agree with you, right? So I used to think that you, know, you don't want to send the letter if they don't ask for it. But I really think that admission officers are people... Like if I'm working in a mission office, I want my dean to be happy that I brought them a student who said yes. And I'm going to pick the students that have indicated me that they are likely to say yes. But this can also swing into a zone where it gets annoying or concerning when a student is over enthusiastic yes. from the wait list. 
shows up on a campus visit and wants to have a conversation with an admission officer, sends emails every day asking what the status of the waitlist is. What is the line? Like, is there more that people should do beyond sending that letter or is that enough and just yeah, sit back? Generally, and I say I would send the letter if you know your admissions officer or you have some kind of contact and you want to shoot them an email, um, you know, more directly by all means, I think that's fine. But yes, I mean, I haven't been at Georgetown in a while and I still remember some of the crazy that showed up, um, off, you know, trying to get themselves off the wait list. And I just wanted to like say to them, please stop. You are hindering your chances of doing this. One kid set up a tent on the front patio of the admissions office. And I was like, well, now that's a no. That may might have been a yes. I have no idea if you were even a contender, but now that's a no. Um, You know, Uh, we had somebody send us a Scrabble board with George, which I mean, some people thought was cute. I thought was like a little serial killer-ish. So maybe not. Um, You know, there were, you know... (laughs) So again, I do think it's fine. I think if, you know, ask five people if they think it looks creepy or overdone. And if even one says yes, assume one of those people might be your admissions officer and call it a day. Yeah. Yeah. I think you gotta be, you gotta be careful. And I think the other thing is that the communication really needs to come from the student. Um, If you have mom and dad banging on the door or making calls or sending the emails, that is often bad from the perspective of an admission officer. We want to see students that are taking ownership of their process and are the ones that are actively communicating. Um, would you recommend that students stay on the wait list at more than one school? So, you know, they deposited, they've got the school that they are most likely to go to is the one they're depositing at by May 1st. Is it good idea, bad idea to remain on the wait list at multiple institutions or should they narrow it down to just one if they're going to be on a wait list? I mean, I really think that's up to the student about how much they want to go to those other schools, right? If you had two schools you really, really, really wanted to go to before the one you're about to deposit at, then I'm okay. Stay on both of them. Again, understand your odds are not great and get excited about that one you're going to. But I think if you really know, I mean, only stay on a wait list where a place where you really legitimately think you would actually take the spot if offered, right? If you're like, no, I'd probably still stay where I'm in deposited, then let it go. Everybody's, it makes it room for easier, you know, the admissions officer has less one thing, you know, a person to worry about. It makes room for one more spot, you know, as somebody else to take that spot who actually wants it. So really be thoughtful. Like, would I really go if I'm taken off the wait list? And if the answer is no, then let it go. All right. And there's a lot of sitting and waiting by the phone um, or proverbial sitting and waiting by the phone. I guess we get to take them with us now. Um, at what point should a student figure I'm not getting the call? When in the calendar year is it? Is it essentially done. I remember waiting to hear from a wait list until like July and then I was released. Uh, that was definitely too late. Uh, but what would you recommend? I would say for most schools, and I'd be curious actually what my colleagues would say, I would say by mid-May, 1st of June, right? Same. At that point, we've called everybody, right? If, yeah. And again, if if I'm taking anybody off in July or August, it's because of a very late you know, person who changed their mind and we're talking two or three people I'm taking off at that point. So your odds just went from 1% to, you know, whatever less than 1% is. Um, so we, yeah. I would say mid-May to June, start buying all the swag from wherever you're going. Cause that's, that's where you're going, where you're going. And congrats. You're going to love it. You chose yes. to apply there. You got in, um, that's it's right. a place you're going to love. So, all right, Karen, we did it. We filled that's some right. time about the wait list. Uh, thanks for coming on the show and talking through it. I think it's going to be helpful for some families. Good. Bye, everybody. Bye. I'm not leaving. I got got more show to to do. We're going to talk about tax advantages for saving for college uh, after this, so don't go away. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. 
Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Your taxes were due a week ago, uh, and I hope that you went ahead and submitted those taxes or filed for an extension. But of course, because it's tax season, we just figure maybe we should talk a little bit about tax advantages associated with saving for college. And so joining us to do that is, uh, I guess you're not giving us tax advice, right, Lori? Because you're not certified for tax advice. You're shaking your head. So Lori Peltier here on the show. She's a college finance expert. Welcome to the show, Lori. Hi, Ian. I'm happy to be here. All right. So no tax advice, no investment advice. We'll just stipulate that here from the beginning, but we do want to talk a little bit about some tax advantages that come with saving for college. So let's just start at the very beginning. What are these opportunities to save for college that give me tax advantages? What do those look like? So there's three that that are specific for college expenses. The 529 savings plan, the right. 529 prepaid plan, mm-hmm. and the Coverdell education savings account. Uh, these three um, come up all the time in conversations with people, you know, should I do it? Should I not do it? What's the benefit? So I thought it would be a good time to to bring out some of those benefits. These accounts are funded with after-tax dollars. So they're mm-hmm. not going to save you any money up front. It's, you know, money that's already been through your paycheck has been taxed. Um, but once it's invested in these accounts, it grows tax-free. So there is no taxation on capital gains or interest income. Uh, any growth you have on the account, you will not have to pay taxes on as long as you're using the money uh, for how it was intended. So there are specifics around that. The 529 plan is kind of unique because it is affiliated with your state. Each Mm -hmm. state has a 529 plan, but that does not mean you have to choose your plans from your state. It does not restrict where you go to school, which is a a big uh, misconception about those the Coverdell is a little different than the 529 plan because it's more of just an individual investment that you're doing on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has some restrictions on who can contribute based on their income and how much you can contribute. The Coverdell has a much smaller uh, dollar amount for a maximum contribution per year than the 529 plan. But the taxation piece of it, growing tax-free, withdrawals are tax-free if used as intended, that follows all three of them through through their lifespan. Gotcha. And the intended use is for a qualified educational expense. Is that right? What, what does that mean? How right. can I identify a qualified educational expense? Right. And the abbreviation there is QEEs, qualified education expense. Everything so it has, is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, 
So it first all has to be for the beneficiary named on the account. So when you open these accounts, you're going to designate who the beneficiary is. And we'll talk later about how you can change that. But uh, so the expense has to be for that person who's the beneficiary. And then uh, for college related, it can be tuition, fees, room and board, even off campus, if the student's at least a half-time student, uh, books, computer supplies, and K through 12 tuition expenses. If you have, um, you're sending your child to a private kindergarten through 12th grade, you can pay for tuition out of that. And just recently they added loan repayment. So $10,000 a year, uh, sorry, $10,000 per account can be used to pay off student loans. If you end up borrowing for college, but then you end up having excess in your 529 plan, you could use some of it to pay off those loans. Is it possible for a parent to open a 529 for their child and then change the beneficiary to be the parent and then pay off existing student loans that the parent might have? I don't know why you would do that, but... Is that possible? That's a good question. Because um, you can transfer the beneficiary right. across family members, right. Right? right? But maybe there's a stipulation that you can't for yourself. I don't even know why I would do that. Right. But um, Off the top of my head, I think it says for the, the child or their siblings, but okay. not for the parent. But, okay. but you're right. There, are, there is a lot of flexibility there in changing the beneficiary. And mm-hmm. I have seen parents change the beneficiary to themselves. If they're going back for a master's degree and want to use these funds for that, they can do that. That's, I mean, it's really interesting. And I think one of the things when I was looking at 529s was, okay, this seems really narrow. What if my student, for example, gets a full scholarship, but the fact that you can use it for graduate school, that you can transfer to a grandchild, it sort of makes as long as there are educational expenses in the life of your family, you're very likely to be able to use uh, the money in that 529 plan. Um, now, you've mentioned some of the tax benefits associated with accruing gains within those investments. What about those tax incentives just for contributing to a 529 plan? Um, how does that differ from state to state? Right. So the tax incentives for contributing really vary state to state, and it depends on what state you live in. So I'll use New York, for example. In New York, you can contribute to the New York 529 plan and contributions up to $10,000 can be used to reduce your taxable income that you're reporting to that state. Mm. So it does not affect your federal tax return, but it can reduce your state taxes in that state. A lot of states don't have state tax like Texas, for example. So they don't have that benefit. Gotcha. Um, But there are quite a few states who try to give you that incentive to contribute to the plan and get a a write-off on your taxes to reduce that burden. Yeah. We have that in Oregon. In Oregon, it's a little funkier. You hit different thresholds based on your income level and you get tax credits based on the amount that you have uh, invested into a 529 in the Oregon plan. Um, And then I noticed this past year, Lori, I was sharing with the finance team that I was telling my mom, you can contribute to a grandchild's 529 plan in Arizona and get some tax benefits from that. So I was trying to, you know, kind of elbow her in the ribs on that front. Um, All right. Now, what about choosing them? Like there's savingforcollege.com that has information about every state's 529 plan. How do I go about making the right choice? And I think that probably there's two different categories, right? Either I get some state tax breaks or I don't. What does the choice look like depending on which category I fall into? Right. So 
shopping around based on the state you live in and comparing it to other states is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the fund choices that you have. Um, some of the, these plans are owned by the state, but they're managed by individual investment firms. Right. So naming some names doesn't mean they're better or worse than anybody else. But for example, Fidelity, a lot of people will say, I want to invest in Fidelity, but I want, I want my 529 plan to be managed by Fidelity. So then you look for that state that has a Fidelity plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of options there. And even within that, you have choices of funds to choose from you know, going as risky or as conservative as you want to go with your investments. So I think um, first and foremost, looking at your own state's plan, um, if there is an investment advisor that you already have funds with and you want to stick with them, look for plans that are managed by that investment firm. Um, Or looking at like saving for college, they have a top 10 list where they've done the evaluations based on benefits and performance and things like that. But as you said in the beginning, you know, this is... It is an investment. You can lose money in these. So it's something you have to think pretty strongly about. Right. And, and you know, you got to think about what your risk profile is going to be and how conservatively you want. And they've got a lot of great target date funds that will automatically rebalance as your student gets closer to 18, which is their obviously their college going age. Mm-hmm. That's also the point in time, Lori, that you start applying for financial aid. And I was hanging out with some other parents of nine-year-olds this weekend. And one of the parents asked me about financial aid qualifications and how these savings account can affect the qualification for financial aid. What is the relationship between a savings account like one of these 529s and the eligibility that you have for financial aid? That is a big question that we get all the time. The 529 plans, whether a savings plan or prepaid or the Coverdell account, are all treated as a parent's asset. So it's treated the same in the financial aid process as you have cash in the bank or in your savings account or stocks that you own. It's not Mm -hmm. treated any worse or or any better. Parent-owned assets are factored into the financial aid equation at about 5%. So if you have saved $100,000 in all your children's 529 plans combined, that's going to have a $5,000 impact on your financial aid eligibility. So not very is, much. Is that going to be per year that that $5,000 yes. will count? Okay. Yes. So if my, um, ex- if my expected financial contribution, my, my family contribution is $20,000 without accounting for the 529, then it would be $25,000 if I had invested at $100,000. Right. In, but you would have $100,000 available to pay for college. So you'd be in which a feels like it's position. kind of worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a small, it's a small fee to pay. There is in mentioning, you know, sort of the, um, some of the drawbacks, right. There's both the effect that it has on your financial aid eligibility, which is quite small, but also penalties. If you choose to withdraw some of these funds and not use them for educational expenses, there are circumstances where you can do that. What does that look like for someone that might need access to that money? Right. So you can withdraw at any time from these accounts and use the money. But if it's not for the specified expenses, um, you will have to pay federal income tax on the earnings portion. Mm-hmm. So whatever percentage of your withdrawal is earnings, you'll pay federal income tax on that and a 10% penalty on those earnings very similar to if you withdrew from your retirement early or or something like that. Um, If you're withdrawing it because your child received a large scholarship and you no longer need the money, you get that 10% penalty waived. 
So you can still, like if you got a $20,000 scholarship, you could withdraw 20,000 from the 529 plan, still pay any taxes that are required on that, Mm -hmm. but um, not the 10% penalty um, because it was a scholarship. That's interesting. Very interesting. So that, so that actually makes the argument that, well, my kid might qualify for a scholarship a little more moot. Um, you know, you still a good idea to, uh, invest in those five, two nines. Now you mentioned retirement. And I think when people kind of take a step back and they're starting to look at the cost of college and where the money is going to come from, they're not just looking at these savings accounts for college. They're also looking at their 401ks, other kinds of retirement accounts. Is that a route that, that parents should consider? Is it a, is, are there any tax advantages to doing so and any potential drawbacks too? So um, as someone who's approaching retirement, you want to be careful about using your retirement early. Um, The Roth IRA, the individual retirement account, uh, the Roth is the most flexible for Mm -hmm. use for college because a Roth allows you to access the principal and leave the earnings in there. So you could access your principal amount of your Roth to pay for college, even if you're not retirement age. Okay. And so is there a particular reason that someone might choose to do that just because they're maybe they're short and they've got this principle because of investments they made over a mm-hmm. period of time? Um, is there a penalty, similar penalty if you're taking out the earnings from a Roth or is it greater? If you're not 59 and a half and you access the earnings, it's the same thing, a 10% penalty on those earnings. Gotcha. So you have to figure out what that that's worth to you in terms of right. covering that cost uh, of investment. Are there any other vehicles or um, just things that are connected, especially to these tax advantages. I think that they tend to be small and they're obviously very state specific here and there. Although the the tax savings that you get on earnings, I think is pretty significant. And that's not something that you'll see in a traditional you know, investment account, a brokerage account. Um, anything else that we might want to draw people's attention to? Um, well, I think look at all your options. Really consider that anything you can save now, even if it doesn't have a tax incentive, is something you won't have to borrow when the time comes. Yeah. Most people are, you know, we're, we're dealing with that now with seniors in the spring um, who are floored by the cost that they have to pay and they really wish they had saved more. So, um, you know, they these plans look pretty restrictive from the outside, but they are pretty flexible because of the change of the beneficiary and the long list of things you can use them for and the, uh, the waiver of the penalty for the scholarships. So, so I would say, you know, if you have children and you think college is in the future, you know, think about putting some money aside, maybe diversifying some Roth IRA, some regular savings and some 529 or some mix of those so that you have um, some options when it comes time to pay for college. That sounds good. Um, I don't know what I'm doing, but I got a lot of different things going at once. So maybe that's maybe that's the best way to do it. Um, Lori, thanks for coming on the show and walking through this stuff. It's, it is more and more relevant for me every time. So I, I really appreciate the guidance. <laughs> No problem. Happy to be here. Awesome. All right. That does it for this week's show. Uh, Really was a pleasure to talk to all three of our guests. I hope if you uh, are just tuning in for this segment with Lori, because she's your favorite, that you'll also go back and listen to our first segment with Jack Murphy about his college process. Um, And we talked a little bit about the wait list as well. Next week, we have a really terrific show lined up for you. We're going to have the deans of admission from Babson, Olin, and Wellesley, three colleges that tend to work together in a mini consortium there. Uh, And they're going to come on to talk to us all about admission and financial aid. So it'll be a really terrific show. 
You won't want to miss it. Until then, we hope you have a great week and weekend and take care. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.